0: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما انك على كل شيء قدير وبعد Assalamu alaykum wa This is lesson 96 correct And last week we completed our discussion about the siege of Banu Qurayza and that is a continuation if you will of Ghazwatul Ahzab or Ghazwatul Khandak the Battle of the Confederates or the Battle of the Trench as it's also called and there is one part to these two events Khandak and Banu Quraidha that we haven't yet discussed and that is the passing of Sayyiduna Sa'ad Ibn Mu'ad Radhi Anhu now, his story is presented during the Battle of Khandak as well as during the siege of Banu Qurayza. And we know that after the conclusion of Banu Qurayza, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered the dua of Mu'ath, of Sa'ad bin Mu'ath, that he made after he was wounded during the battle. So, in the Battle of Khandak, he was wounded and the shoulder, neck area, the clavicle, most likely. And after he was wounded, he made the following dua. "O Allah, if this will be the last time, in the last confrontation with him, then accept me as a martyr, but but allow my eyes to be comforted by seeing what happens to Banu Qurayza. So that's the first dua. He actually made two duas. The first dua, he is asking to be accepted as a shaheed. And he is asking that that only come after his eyes are comforted by seeing consequences before Banu Qarayva. So that's the first dua that he made after he was wounded. The second dua he made is recorded by Imam al-Bukhari. And in Sahih al-Bukhari, we find the following dua of Sa'ad bin Mu'ad. "O oh Allah, If you have ended the war, then open the wound and let me die from it. So this is a, it could be all one dua, it could be two narrations. So we see that he's asking for shahada after his eyes are comforted by seeing consequences before Banu Quraydah. And he's asking that if he is going to be a shaheed, let it be from the opening of that wound he sustained during the battle. Because the siege of Banu Qurayda came, or the opening of Banu Qurayda came basically a month after he was wounded. And in that one month period, he's in this nursing tent that is pitched inside of the masjid of the Prophet. So when they were sieging Banu Qurayda, he was still in that tent. And then he was called and he came forth to Banu Qurayda and issued that judgment. So Allah Ta'ala answered these du'as. Allah brought comfort to the heart of Sa'ad bin Mu'adh in seeing the consequences befall Banu Qurayza for their betrayal. And Allah Ta'ala answered his dua for shahada. And the way he received his shahada was through that wound he sustained during the battle one month before. That wound that he was tending to and in nursing inside of that tent, it burst shortly after the siege of Banu Qurayza was over. The narration mentions that it seemed that the wound was healing. It appeared that it was getting better, except for one small portion of the wound. And that small portion began, it burst, and it began to release blood. And that blood began to flow even on the ground of the masjid. And people who are outside of that nursing tent can see the blood coming from beneath the tent, going outside onto the ground. And people were alarmed, and they cried out. They said, Ya al Khaybah, oh O you people who are attending to this nursing tent, what is coming outside of the tent? It was his blood. And he continued to bleed until he succumbed to this wound. What caused that wound to burst? This is an interesting question. And we have the answer to that in the tabaqat of Al-Imam Ibn sa'd in his tabaqat, he relates a narration which says that the reason why the wound burst was because after dealing with Banu Qurayza, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh was reclining next to a tree, just resting. So either he's sitting down or he's lying down. And as he's lying down, a goat passed by him. You know, you live here, you wonder how could that happen. But if you live in those environments, it makes perfect sense. Right? This goat passes by him and bumps into him with his hoof. As the hoof bumps into him, it basically hits that area, causing the wound to burst and it got worse. It was deeply infected inside of his chest. And when that happened, he began to bleed until eventually he succumbed to that wound. Now, when the Prophet was informed about what was happening to Sa'ad bin Mu'adh, In the masjid, he quickly got up and went over to him And he embraced him He was basically hugging him, embracing him And he passed away shortly thereafter The narration says that as the Prophet ﷺ was hugging him The blood was spurting from the wound And it was getting on the Prophet's clothes And some of the blood was even getting on his blessed beard And some people were trying to uh, safeguard the Prophet وسلم, from having the blood get on him by trying to separate the two and tend to the wound. But the Prophet وسلم, continued to hold him in this embrace and drew closer to Sa'ad. He said to him, Sallallahu wa May Allah reward you well as a chief of your people, for you have fulfilled your promise to Allah. And Allah will fulfill His promise to you. And then He made a dua for Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh. He said, Ya Allah, Sa'ad has fought for your sake. He has believed and affirmed your messenger, and He has done His duty. So accept His soul in the most beautiful manner you accept souls. So Sa'ad hasn't yet passed away. He makes this dua. As he's drifting in and out of consciousness in the embrace of the Prophet وسلم, he hears that dua. Hearing the dua, he opens his eyes and he sees the Prophet وسلم, embracing him and he says, Assalamu alayka Ya Rasulullah, Ashhadu anna Rasulullah. He says, Peace be upon you, Assalamu alayka, O Messenger of Allah. I testify that you are truly the Messenger of Allah. And then he was placed back down and they were nursing the wound. The Prophet وسلم, is making his way back home. It's not certain yet when or if he's going to pass away from this wound. So they're still tending to it. And Rasulullah goes back to his home. And as he's making his way back home, the hadith mentions that he had an encounter with the angel Jibreel alayhi salam who appeared once again wearing a silken turban. So this is happening repeatedly. He sees Jibreel in this form who says to him, Ya Muhammad, who is that deceased person? Had <laughs> al-mayyit. And in one riwayah, <laughs> "Hadat al-tayyib. is that deceased person? Or who is that good person for whom the doors of heaven have opened and the Arsh, the throne of Ar-Rahman, has trembled, shaken. And the Prophet wasallam realized from that question what had happened to Sa'ad and that in that moment Sa'ad radiyallahu anhu had passed away. And he returns to the tent and finds that that is indeed the case. Allah Ta'ala took the soul of Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh inside of the masjid of the Prophet وسلم, succumbing to the wound he suffered at the Battle of Khandaq. Now in this hadith, we have it conveyed from Jibreel السلام, that the arsh of Allah Ta'ala trembled or shook over the martyrdom of Sa'adi bin ibn Mu'adh. What does that mean? What, is the, what does it mean for the arsh of Allah to tremble? The ulama give two interpretations for this hadith. When they talk about the trembling of the arsh, they say it means either the throne trembled out of anger for the killing of Sa'd ibn Mu'adh, or it trembled or shook out of joy for him attaining the honor of shahada. And this makes sense when you consider the other hadith of the Prophet wasallam which says that the shuhada, those who are martyred, they, Allah Ta'ala places their souls within the bellies of green birds that roam in the heavenly realms and, sus- and are suspended and roaming around lanterns attached to the arsh. So there is a connection between the arwah of the shuhada and the arsh, this largest and greatest creation of Allah in size and immensity. So there's a connection between the shuhada and the arsh in that way. So according to that interpretation, the arsh as this creation of Allah is shaking out of joy and anticipation of receiving that close contact with the ruh of Saad ibn Mu'adh anhu. Uh, and these are the two interpretations given. So Saad, anhu has now succumbed to his wounds. He's now shaheed and it is time for the burial. So we know from the narrations that Sa'd bin Mu'adh was not a short and skinny man. He was not overweight, as we would describe it. He is described as jaseem, and he's a stout man, thick bones, thick limbs, strong and sturdy. He's very stout, which means that he's also very heavy. And when he was making his way to Banu Qurayza, wounded and weak, he was on this mule or donkey and the donkey feels the burden of carrying this heavy man and when the sahaba are preparing the for the funeral and the burial of sa'ad ibn mu'adh they have to carry the body and as they're carrying the body they found that sa'ad ibn mu'adh was actually quite light he's not heavy as they would have expected him to be due to his size and they said we've never, never carried anyone lighter than him and the Prophet heard this and said, Why shouldn't he be light? Because 70,000 angels have descended and they have never descended to the earth except for now and they are carrying his body alongside you. So his, his body is not just carried by Sahaba, carried by 70,000 angels. And by the way, the Prophet also carried his body. That's why it felt so light because it was carried by so many. So they're carrying the body of Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh until they reach the cemetery of Al-Baqir. And when they finish burying him, the Prophet ﷺ sprinkled some water on his grave, and then he covered it with his own garment. This is an honor he received, that very few received. He covers it with his garment. Reflecting on this burial, the Sahabi Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu anhu says, I was of those who dug the grave for Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh. And the smell of musk would waft whenever we moved the soil. So as they move the soil, as they're digging it out, the more they dig, the more the fragrance of musk would be diffused in that area. This is a karama. This is a miracle. And this miracle appears in different ways. And it's not just restricted to the Sahaba who fell in battle or those who succumbed to their wounds sustained in battle. This karama of the fragrance of musk emitting from the bodies of shuhada has continued throughout the centuries even up until today. There is there's a really beautiful book that was written in the 1980s. Uh, I don't know if it's even, it's not in print anymore, but maybe you can find it online these days, I, who knows. Uh, and the book is called Ayatul Rahman fi Jihad al Afghan. It was written by a Sheikh, Azzam, rahimahullah, uh, who was an Azhari scholar who was there in Afghanistan. And he basically collected all of these stories of different karamat that happened uh, when the Afghans were fighting against the Soviets. And it even has asanid chains of narration. You know, he says, and I heard from uh, Amir Fulan who related from Fulan during this ma'raka, this individual, this and that happened, and there's so many narrations like that. And this is 1980s, and literally a third of the stories involve the smell of musk or people because they're Hanafis. You know, in the Hanafi madhab, uh, you still do Janazah. so. There's times where people's bodies were buried and the janazah wasn't offered or they would have to go do the janazah and they would dig the body back up and transport it and do the janazah. And they relate these kinds of stories that as they retrieve the body, uh, months after the person has fallen in battle, they're smelling the scent of musk. This is very common. But we have this clearly in this hadith in, uh, happening to the Sahabi Sa'ad bin Mu'adh. Uh, Jabir radiallahu anhu, he also transmits something about this burial and he says that we were with the prophet sallallahu alaihi wa when Sa'ad was buried he stood at the grave praising Allah saying Alhamdulillah and people began to join with him saying Alhamdulillah Alhamdulillah and then he began to glorify Allah saying Subhanallah Subhanallah and then the people began to join with him saying Subhanallah Subhanallah But then they asked him, Ya Rasulullah, why are you saying Subhanallah? And he says, the grave squeezed upon this righteous servant until Allah released it for him. So this is a hadith that talks about the qabd, or the squeezing of the grave. And there are a number of hadith that talk about the squeezing that occurs in the barzakh upon the deceased. Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha, she talks about this incident too. And she says that there is this qabd, this squeezing of the grave. And were anyone to be shielded from it, were anyone to be spared of it, it would be Sa'ad bin ibn Mu'adh, but it even happened to him. So what is this squeezing? What does it indicate? There's two basic ways you can interpret the squeezing. And we talked about this a little bit some years back when we taught the book of Sheikh Abdullah bin Ali al-Haddad the lives of men because he has a section in there describing these narrations there's two ways you can interpret the squeezing you can interpret it one as a squeezing of embrace not as a punishment as such but an embrace and as an embrace it's an embrace of love for and pleasure for the believers And if it's for a disbeliever or a person being punished, then it's a punishment, right? Uh, That's one way you can look at it. Another way you can look at the squeezing is that the squeezing is a form of expiation, a form of kafara, a thing that wipes away any traces of sins or anything unbecoming. It's a way of giving some purity to get rid of the last vestiges of any impurity. That is one interpretation. And this interpretation is actually supported by the narration recorded by Imam al-Bayhaqi in his Dala'il al-Nabuwa. In his collection, he narrates that the family of Sa'd ibn Mu'adh were asked, why do you think that the grave squeezed upon him in that moment as the Prophet described And the family of Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh said We think it's because he fell short at times From purifying himself from the traces of urine This is the narration in Dala'il al-Nabuwa And Allah Ta'ala knows best That would indicate that the that's a negative thing and it was removed, the effects of that were removed through that embrace of the grave, that light squeeze that removed that, the effects of that. And Allah Ta'ala knows best. When Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh was buried, it was a great loss for the community. And that is because the Sahaba themselves, they have a hierarchy. And Sa'ad was among the elite of the Sahaba, among the most beloved of the Sahaba. And Sayyidina Aisha anha, she said about this, that no one's loss was more painful to the community, to the ummah, after the loss of Abu Bakr and Umar, than the loss of Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad. There was a, a, there was a grief expressed upon his passing that was not felt as anti- in, in such an intense way, except for Abu Bakr radhiallahu anhu and Sayyidina Umar. And she also tells us that when the Prophet ﷺ returned from the burial, he returned with his eyes filled with tears and his beard soaked in tears. How old was Sa'ad bin Mu'adh when he succumbed to his wounds? Does anyone know? He was 37, 37 according to one narration. So this is, this is a, a, young, a young man you know kids think that 37 means you're an old geezer but 37 is young that is young so this is really the final chapter to khandaq and banu qareza that burial of Sa'ad bin mu'ad where are we in this timeline of the seerah we know 13 years in mecca and 10 years in medina we are at the end of the fifth year after the Hijrah. So after Khandaq, in the fifth year of the Hijrah, we have a tribe coming to the Prophet wasallam. This was the tribe of Asjara. You'll hear certain names in history. Fulan Al-Ashja'i from the tribe of Asja. The chiefs of this tribe and its notables they came to the Prophet. It was about a hundred of them. And they expressed their weariness and lack of desire to engage in any further hostilities or to ally themselves with those who have hostilities to the Prophet. And they expressed a desire to enter into a peace treaty with him. And he agreed to this, and as a result of this discussion and treaty, they ended up becoming Muslim, and the entire tribe became Muslim. So this is towards the end of the fifth year. When we look in the the accounts of the seerah, we, we look at the timeline, this is occurring at the tail end of the fifth year. So now we have finished the fifth year after hijrah of the seerah. We now enter into the sixth year. So the sixth year is quite momentous as well. Every year is momentous in its own way. But this year is momentous. But we're looking at a series of events that occur between the Ghazwa of Al-Khandaq and the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. So between, between those two events, we basically have a series of a, a bit over a dozen Saraya and a few minor Ghazawat. And then you have the Treaty of Al Hudaybiyah. So the Sira works mention that in the sixth year of the Hijrah, we have the Ahzab defeated. We have Banu Quraydah dealt with. We have the other tribes expelled. We have the pride of Quraysh broken as a result of Ghazwatul Khandaq. Now they say peace and calm has finally settled upon Medina. Because if you go back, you have incident after incident after incident culminating with the Battle of al and then Banu quraiza Now, peace and tranquility have settled upon Medina. There's now a sense of closure, a sense of peace moving forward. So this doesn't mean that there's no conflicts. This is a tribal society. And there are still other smaller outlying tribes besides Quraysh and Ratafan, who may look for opportunities to attack, opportunities to seize, seize livestock and things like that. So these are tribes that live in the outlying areas that look for opportunities to seize camels, seize sheep and goats and stuff like that. So you have incidents where these smaller tribes are looking for opportunities to do that. Eventually word reaches back to the Prophet and the Sahaba, and they will occasionally try to counter their plans by preempting them with Saraya expeditions before they can reach Medina. So this period between Khandaq and the Treaty of al Hudaybiyah we see a little over a dozen smaller expeditions, saraya and a few small ghazawat, in which the Prophet ﷺ participates. Uh, There are so many of them. So what we're going to do today is go over those very briefly, working our way through the sixth year. So we'll list them in chronological order with a few basic facts about what happened. So we have number one, in the sixth year of the Hijrah, we have number one, the Sariyah of Muhammad ibn Maslama to a place called Al-Qurta. This was a very minor expedition in which he led a group of 30 companions. They were sent by the Prophet to attack this place called Al-Qurta, attacking a Clan of Banu Bakr called Ubaid bin Kilab of Qais ibn Ailan. Not, not that you can keep up with all of these names, but we named them. They were about seven nights' travel to Medina. So Muhammad bin Maslama, along with thirty of the companions, set out on the tenth of Muharram. And when they arrived at this place, which is about seven days from Medina, the word had already spread. And these tribesmen had fled, and this left the Muslims to simply take the livestock left behind and return with the livestock back to Medina. That was it. Very uneventful. They just secured some livestock. Now, in some of the seerah works, they mention that in connection with this seriyah, they say that Thumama ibn Uthal was captured in this expedition. However, that's not really true because Ibn Ishaq mentions that Abu Hurairah witnessed the capture of Thumamah ibn Uthal. Abu Hurairah didn't come to Medina until the seventh year after the hijrah. So that means that the capture of Thumamah occurred a year later. And there's a very long story about his capture and what happened. We'll come to that next week insha'allah. ta'ala. Number two, we have the Ghazwa of Banu Lihyan. So, Sariya is when it's just companions. Ghazwa is when they are led by the Prophet The Ghazwa of Banu Lihyan. So, we go back to one of the early stories we told about the betrayal of Khubayb and other companions who were betrayed by Banu Lihyan and captured and eventually sold off. So this betrayal grieved the Prophet sallallahu alaihi And there had to be a response to that betrayal Now that the threats of the Ahzab have been dealt with It is now time to deal with that betrayal So the issue with this response is that it had to be timed just right And the reason why is because the question comes up Well why didn't the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa respond Before the Ahzab Because after all This occurred well before the Ahzab This betrayal of those companions The answer is that Banu Lihyan lived Not too far From the tribal areas Surrounding Quraysh They were in the Hijaz, deep in the Hijaz Which meant that The Prophet Is facing two threats The threats of Banu Lihyan, the smaller tribe That betrayed and the greater threat of Quraysh. So it makes sense to deal with the greater threat before you deal with the minor threat. Now that the greater threat has been dealt with in Ahzab, there's an opportunity to deal with the minor threat of Banu lihyan So this is the time to respond. The Prophet Sallallahu sent, went with 200 men and 20 horses. And by the time they reach the area of Banu Lihyan, guess what happens? The word gets out, the word gets out. Uh, This happens so often, because think about it. These are, this is rough terrain. These are uh, a, a nomadic tribal people. They can get around on camels. You can see for vast distances, there are scouts. So you see 200 people coming Word gets back to the tribe of Banu Lihyan. And when eventually they reach, uh, Banu Lihyan had headed for the foothills and were out of the reach of the Muslims. They had scattered and headed for the foothills. The Prophet ﷺ remained there for a couple of days. And in total, they were gone for two weeks from the city of Medina. So you know, nothing happened. Uh, that was it. You use the opportunity. If they disperse, you can't scatter your own forces to chase individuals who have gone into the foothills. You can only deal with them as a force. If they dissipated their own forces, you can't really put one-to-one and scatter your own forces. That puts you at risk. So the choice was to wait for them to regroup. They didn't regroup, so you go back and wait for another opportunity. So that was the second Ghazwa, or the second uh, of these expeditions that occurred in the sixth year after the Hijra. The third expedition was the Sariyya of Rukasha ibn Mihson, Radiallahu Anhu, to a place called Al Ghamr. Rukasha was sent by the Prophet in al Rabiul al-Awal to a place called al ghamr And al ghamr had a spring. You know what a spring is, like water flows from it. And that means it's a place with water as a resource. So a tribe will definitely settle around that spring. And this tribe was Banu Asad. So, Ukasha ibn Mihsan was sent by the Prophet sallallahu in the month of al al-awwal with 40 men. And they left very quickly when they got the notice to go. They didn't waste any time. They rushed to get there. But guess what happened? Again, word gets out. And Banu Asad quickly got wind of it and fled and it was uneventful, nothing came of that. It's still a seriyah. Why do they put this in the books of Sirah? Because even if you go and nothing happens, there's no fighting. As a sahabi going out on a seriyah, you are receiving immense rewards for the expedition, for spending your wealth, spending your time, spending your health. Sacrificing going out At the bidding of the Prophet Even if nothing happens You receive the reward As if something happened Because either way that was your intention The fourth Sariyah Is the Sariyah of Muhammad bin Maslama To a place called Dhul Qassa So this is In Ar-Rabi'i Thani The month after the expedition of Ukasha bin Mihsan. He was sent, Muhammad bin Maslama was sent by the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam with only 10 men to this place called Dhul Qassa, a tribal area of Banu Tha'laba, which is a branch of the Ghatafan and also Banu Rawal of Tha'laba in a place called Dhul Qassa, 24 miles from the city of Medina. They only went with 10 men. Because it's a small clan, it's not a large force. When they arrived there, they didn't anticipate a large force. That's why they only came with 10. But when they get there, they found that there were 100 men who also got word of their arrival. But this time, they didn't scatter. They actually set up an ambush They were waiting for them. They set up an ambush. And when the Muslim force, this small force of 10 people arrived with Muhammad bin Maslama as their amir, they were attacked. And they were shooting arrows at this small Muslim force. And then they started to attack them with spears closing in on the distance. And some of the Muslims were killed. Muhammad bin Maslama got wounded in the ankle and was immobile because of the wound. Immobile, unable to move He was then attacked and he was killed in this battle رضي taala anhu. So this You could say it was a loss in the sense that They were ambushed But the Muslims who survived managed to make their way back And, and they have a shaheed And among a couple others that were killed But nothing else came of this We have the fifth sariyyah the sariyya of abu ubaida ibn al-jarrah anhu to dhul qassa dhul qassa again so after muhammad ibn maslama went there and was killed the prophet sallallahu wa sent abu ubaida with 40 riders not foot not not infantry on foot but 40 cavalry back to this place called dhul qassa to get vengeance to go and attack them again, to avenge those who were killed. And also because according to one narration, word got back to some of the other clans, the clans of Banu Muharib and Thalaba and Anmar, and they wanted to plan a raid against Medina and capture livestock in a place on the outskirts outside of Medina. So they say there's two reasons why. A second expedition went After the first one to Dhul Qassa The first is for vengeance For Muhammad bin Maslama And the second is to preempt Any Attack against Medina To seize livestock So they went again And they arrived in this area of Dhul Qassa uh, Before dawn And they attacked And this was actually one of the sunnahs Of the Prophet To attack Uh, at Fajr time so the enemy fled this time there was no ambush in wait they attacked at dawn and the enemy fled except for one man who was captured but guess what happened with him he became a Muslim and they let him go he was released and they brought back livestock to Medina and that livestock was divided otherwise it was uneventful that is number 5 we come to number 6 which is the Sariyya of Zayd ibn al-Harith to Banu Sulaym. This is in the same month of al-Rabi'i al-Thani. Zayd radiallahu anhu was sent with a small force to Banu Sulaym. And they get there and it was uneventful. They just managed to capture some livestock and camels along with a few captives. And we find in this sariyya a story about a husband and a wife that were captured and the Prophet Wasallam freed the both of them so they could be together. You just let them go. That was it. So otherwise uneventful. And you know, you read these stories and you wonder, why do this? Well, this is war. And by doing this, you're also putting them on notice that they should never think of trying to raid Medina. You preemptively do this to put them on notice that we will respond with force if you try to raid us. And so by doing that, you prevent any further attacks. And that's one of the purposes. The seventh Sariyah is the Sariyah of Zayd ibn haritha again, to another place called al Ils. And there's a story about this one. This is a beautiful story. So you have a caravan belonging to Quraysh, returning from Sham, making its way back to Mecca, using an alternative route. And on, it's making its way back from Sham. Word reaches the Prophet ﷺ. So the Prophet ﷺ sends Zayd ibn al-Haritha with 70 riders to capture this caravan. Now this caravan, they captured it, they were successful. There was no real fight that they could put up. It was easy, an easy victory. It just so happened that this caravan contained lots of silver, a lot of money in here. And there's a long story about the aftermath of this incident because one of the people in the caravan captured was a person by the name of Abu al Aas. Now I know it gets tough with all of the names and the tribes, Banu Fulan and Fulan Ibn Fulan, Al Fulani, all of the names. But does anyone remember who Abu al Aas is? We talked about him many months ago. He's the husband of Sayyida Zainab bint Muhammad. He is a mushrik. Sayyidah Zainab is in Medina. She made hijrah. He remains in Mecca. He's in this caravan and he is captured. So he's brought to Medina as a prisoner. And he comes into the presence of the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims and he pleads that he was entrusted with securing the wealth in that caravan bringing it back to medina and making sure that each portion is distributed to its rightful owner so he's pleading with them saying listen i i had this as an amana on my neck and i would like to fulfill that amana can you please allow me to fulfill that amana number 1 by granting me some aman you know aman is this guarantee of security to move about freely unharmed. And who gave him the aman? It was his wife, Sayyidu Zaylam. And there's a, there's a narration about this, that if a Muslim gives a guarantee of security and protection to someone coming in, then that aman has to be respected by others. So she grants him the aman, and when that happens, the Prophet asks the Muslims if they would like to return the wealth back to uh through so he can return to Mecca and distribute it and fulfill the amana. So the Muslims agreed to return it, and that's out of honor for the daughter of the Prophet. It wasn't so much for the sake of Abu al he's still a mushrik, it was for the sake of this being the husband. Of the beloved daughter of Rasulullah. So out of honor for the Ahlul Bayt, they said, okay, we'll give the money back. He can take it with him to Mecca and distribute it to the people he was entrusted to give it back to. So Abu al Ans, he gets the money back and he has Amun, so he's free to go. And he returns to Mecca with the money, gives it back to every rightful person. Distributes it to them And they're all very appreciative And they thank him And after all the money's been distributed And everyone's received their share That Amana is now released from his neck After all is said and done He tells the people in Mecca I have become Muslim Now there's a longer part of this narration I didn't describe And that is The Prophet Telling Zainab That she has to be mindful of how she is with him. She can't be alone with him, even though they're husband and wife. Because he is a mushrik, he hasn't yet become Muslim. So, although they have the bonds of marriage, technically he's haram for her. So, but now he's become a Muslim. He announced it in Mecca. This is after Ahzab, you know, the, the Quraysh are still dealing with that proverbial bloody nose they suffered from the battle. What does he do? He goes right back to Medina and makes Hijrah. So he becomes Muslim, he makes Hijrah and when he gets back to Medina making this Hijrah, the Prophet wasallam returns Sayyida Zainab to him and there were no uh, witnesses or new mahar or new contract or anything. The, their marriage was still intact and they were, he, they, he was returned to her. So now husband and wife are rejoined uh, in the bonds of marriage and the bonds of Islam, walhamdulillah. And that happened as a result of the Sariyah of Zayd ibn Haritha to Al-A'is. That's number seven. Number eight, all, this is all in the sixth year of the Hijrah. Number eight is the Sariyah of Zayd ibn Haritha again to a place called Al-Taraf. And this was in the month of Jumada Al-Akhira. He was sent by the Prophet ﷺ to the spring, the Ain of Banu Tha'laba, about 36 miles from Medina. And he went with 15 men, a very small force. And does anyone want to guess what happened as they got close? Not not an ambush. The Bedouins got word of their arrival. And they ran away. Zayd and the 15 men captured 20 camels, returned with these camels to Medina with zero incident. And that's that. That is number eight. Number nine is the seriyah of... You want to guess who this one is? Zayd ibn al Haritha Again, so we have in the order six, seven, eight, nine all led by Zayd ibn al-Haritha radiallahu anhu. The ninth one is his Sariyya to Wadi al-Qura, Al-Qura Valley. This was in the month of Rajab. And they encountered some men from Banu Fizara who attacked them and killed some of the Muslims. But Zayd was able to escape and nothing else happened. It was unsuccessful, but they managed to escape it. And that's all we know from the Seerah. Number 10, we have the Sariyah of Abdul Rahman ibn Auf to Dumat al Jandal. When we talked about Dumat al Jandal before, I don't know exactly where it is, but it's closer to Sham than it is to Arabia. It's a Christian area of Arab Christians. This was in the month of Sha'ban. The Prophet ﷺ instructed Sayyiduna Abdul Rahman ibn Awf to go with a force of 700 men. 700 to Dumat al Jandal. And the hadith mentions that when he was told to go, he sat before the Prophet ﷺ and the Prophet ﷺ tied the turban around his head. And this establishes the precedent of honoring someone by tying the turban around their head and he was sent with this force of 700 to Dumut and jandal they eventually get there and they remain for three days doing da'wa. it's still a sariya because they come with arms because you never know how things could turn out things could get a little spicy they get there and they engage in da'wah for three days calling the christian arabs in the north to islam and the seer accounts mention that at first the people refused but after some days of da'wah on the third day the chief of those people who was an arab christian actually became a muslim and after he became muslim his tribesmen also became muslim and when that happened, Abdul Rahman ibn Awf sent a letter back to the Prophet Sallallahu giving him the good news that this entire tribe became Muslim. And this is in the uh, region of the north where the Arab Christians were. And you'll see accounts like this and they stand out because we live in a very individualistic society where if someone becomes a Muslim, it's a personal choice. We're not used to hearing accounts of one person, the the patriarch of a family becoming a Muslim, and then all of his family become Muslim right after, or the head of state of a region becoming Muslim, and then all of his followers becoming Muslim. But that was fairly normal back then. People would often just follow the religion of their tribal chief. So if he became this they will become that too. And this doesn't mean they lack sincerity, but there was a norm. And eventually the Islam takes root among the people and their faith grows and they become very sincere believers. But that was a norm back then. We have, we're coming 14 today, and this is number, that's number 10. Uh, number 11 is the Saria of Ali to Fadak. And this was also in the month of Sha'ban. Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu was sent with 100 men to go to Banu Sa'd uh, ibn Bakr. And the reason why they were sent to them is because word got back to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa, alayhi wa sallam, that some individuals or some of the tribe of Banu uh, Sa'd ibn Bakr were fortifying some of the Jews in Khaybar of Banu Nadir. So Khaybar is on the horizon. We'll be getting to that soon enough. But word got back that they were offering material support. And this is, this is Fedak. It's about six nights travel from Medina. They go out there, Sayyidina Ali, with 100 people. They capture a spy and they find out where these fighters were. And they made their way to these fighters and they raided them, capturing 500 camels and 1,000 sheep but Banu Saad as a whole, they had escaped, and it, otherwise it was without incident. We have the 12th one, and I wonder if we're gonna finish these given the time. The 12th Sariyah was the Sariyah of Zayd ibn al through Al-Qura Valley again. So remember, we just told the story of Qura Valley of Zayd ibn Haritha, this is another one. So Zayd himself was going north for trade. He was representing the Muslims going for trade in Sham. And when he was near the Qura Valley, some men from Banu Fisara attacked him and others and took their belongings. So Zayd and his caravan was robbed. When Zayd gets back to Medina, he tells the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam what happened. And so in the month of Ramadan, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam sends him to that region to deal with Banu Fizara. And uh, Imam Muslim in his Sahih, he records a narration which says that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was the Amir. Another narration says it was Zayd ibn Harith that was the Amir. That has led some of the ulama to say that it was actually two different expeditions to the same place uh, And this was the view of Ibn, of ibn sa The Muslims who reached Banu Fizara were successful In dealing with some of the men responsible for raiding that caravan And they were able to capture some of the spoils back And that was the 12th Sariyah Inshallah, we'll stop here uh, The 13th Sariyah is also by Zayd ibn Haritha We'll cover that next week Inshallah along with the longer story of the ceria of Abdullah bin Atiq to assassinate Salam ibn Abu Huqayq wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu sallama ala sayyidina Muhammad any questions Yeah, generally, if there's some detail within the madahib about that, about if if the Muslim, if a woman becomes a Muslim and the husband remains a non Muslim, uh, how does that affect the validity of the marriage contract? The, the basic rule is that that, Muslim, that man is given some time to become a Muslim. It's haram for them to have uh, intimate relations, but, and the marriage contract remains, but he's given some time to become a Muslim. And if he does not become a Muslim, then the contract becomes null and void. If he becomes Muslim within a certain time, then Islam honors that previous marriage contract, and the marriage remains intact, and there's no need for a new contract, mahar witnesses, or anything like that. But there's details within the Madah about how long that is, and to what extent. So we derive that the contracts would remain honored, but the question is only for how how long, how much time would be given before they're rendered null and void. That's where there's some discrepancy. If it's the other way around, if, if the wife, is same thing, yeah, the same thing. Uh, and if it's a Muslim, if it's a person, a Christian or Jewish man becoming Muslim and his kitabi wife, then that marriage remains as it is because it was a valid contract. We respect those contracts and as a kitabia, she can remain as the wife to that now Muslim man.